0: Royal biographer Sally Smith discusses her new book while Prince Harry prepares to take on the Daily Mail and he faces pressure over his use of drugs. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. Today, I am lucky enough to be joined by Sally Bettlesmith, the acclaimed biographer whose royal books have been lending important insights since as far back as Princess Diana's era in the 1990s. Sally, your latest book is on George VI and Queen Elizabeth, who is what we now know as the Queen Mother rather than Queen Elizabeth right. II. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got onto this subject and why you chose this relationship.
1: I wrote a biography of. As- Charles, which came out back in 2017. And then I thought, well, really, I should do the origin story. Because when people think of George VI and Elizabeth, they have sort of two impressions. One is the portrayal of George VI in the movie The King's Speech, which won all kinds of Academy Awards and was by and large, a pretty accurate portrayal of him and the terrible struggle he had dealing with his stutter. But Queen Elizabeth is known as she was for the 50 years after her husband died as the lovable queen mum, the sort of grandmother of the nation. And so people really don't understand what went on during their 28-year marriage and his 15-year reign, which was, you know, it coincided with the six years of World War II, um, which was one of the most tumultuous, uh, harrowing periods of 20th century life. And so, in a nutshell, (laughs) the book about George VI and Elizabeth is a love story. It's really quite a dramatic and kind of very moving love story. It took him 30 months and to persuade her to marry him. And once she did, she was all in. And she was an incredible partner, far more than I realized. And, of course, it's also a story of bravery and leadership. And, um, you know, particularly during World War II when they were constantly putting their lives in danger, and when Buckingham Palace was um, bombed nine times and once they were nearly killed. And it's also, um, even after I had written a whole biography of Queen Elizabeth II, I realized there was a lot that I didn't know about how she was very specifically trained to be a monarch. And so it's all those things. And um, and it explains a lot about the dynamics of the royal family and the duties and the service and what George VI and Elizabeth contributed to British society and the Commonwealth, even before he became king. And I should add that the most important Piece of the book for me was that the Queen allowed me to have special access to her family's papers at the Royal Archives in Windsor Castle.
0: You give a very vivid description of your journey into work each morning.
1: My journey into work each morning was to climb the hundred medieval stone steps. You walk in an unmarked door. At Windsor Castle, and you look up and you see this rather formidable staircase that you climb. And I had a backpack with my laptop and my files and everything. And um, and then you go another twenty-one steps up a circular staircase. So it's um, you know, it's a fairly arduous climb for three months, but it was an, a great aerobic fitness workout. Um, <laughs> and when? But it was there. It was in this in this little room. You know, where I was able to see in a kind of intimate, but not intrusive way, how they lived and what they thought of everything. Uh, The diary that George VI kept from the first day of World War II on September 3rd, 1939, all the way until early 1947. Was a revelation to me. I mean, nobody had really read it in its entirety um, since um, his official biographer back in the 1950s. And it showed his intelligence, his diligence, his shrewdness, his understanding of political leaders, of military leaders, and revealed him as a far more substantial person, I think, than people recognized.
0: And did you ever feel, I mean, if my kind of innermost thoughts were in a diary, I mean, there'd be stuff in there that I, even, you know, decades upon decades later, there'd be stuff in there that I would feel very uh, strange about people reading. Did you ever feel like you were seeing stuff that was very personal and intimate about him, or did he keep it mostly professional?
1: His... Diary was mostly professional, Um, but he, you know, he did, I think I counted up, I think some there were something like 50 entries about his really troublesome brother, his older brother, the Duke of Windsor. It never was an overwhelming thing for him. It was just something he had to deal with from time to time. And my sense of his view of the Duke of Windsor was that he was really a nuisance. Mm -hmm. And he was never intimidated by him, uh, except maybe in the early going, when the Duke of Windsor was calling him up and telling him what to do. And and finally, they said, stop. Mm -hmm. And so he did and and he was a danger he because he was consorting with nazis
0: yeah, yeah and
1: he was unbeknownst to certainly the king at the time um but he was in you know he was sort of in cahoots with nazi leaders um giving them an indication that if they were to invade england they would make him king again yeah if it wasn't treason It was very, very close to treason.
0: And he ended his life as the Duke of Windsor, but obviously he was briefly King Edward VIII. And um, he was actually the older brother to George VI and heir to the throne. And it was obviously through uh, his marriage to Wallace Simpson that he was forced to abdicate. Um, Right. Now... All of the, even before the abdication crisis, he was kind of going over to Germany, wasn't he? And I think he was uh, photographed with um, with Hitler, if I recall correctly.
1: Well, no, he did that actually after he oh. became Duke of Windsor. Forgive me. But I mean, one of the things I, I discovered is that in addition to his totally inappropriate relationship with Wallace Simpson, twice divorced, um, that was a non starter to begin with. But he was a terrible king and reading various diaries, reading various letters from people who were observing him. I mean, he was inattentive. He was irresponsible. He didn't take his role seriously. Um, He would go AWOL for periods of time. He wouldn't show up. I mean, people around him were beginning to see that he was clearly he was a disaster Mm. as king. And in a way, it was sort of fortuitous that Wallace came along and he became obsessed with her and Mm. determined to marry her even before he became king.
0: Yeah, indeed. Now, obviously, this was a a massive moment, not only in the life of George VI, but because George became king, that also meant Queen Elizabeth II, who uh, would otherwise have been a princess like Princess Eugenia Beatrice, was then heir to the throne.
1: She would have been a minor royal.
0: Yeah. And you describe in your book, you basically described this relationship between George VI and his wife, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, as the marriage that saved the monarchy, essentially.
1: Yes. I really believe that. And I I think there's a lot of evidence because I know there was a moment during the abdication crisis when, when then the Duke of York was talking to one of the king's aides and he said, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but essentially, this is a mess and I'm going to have to clean it up. And that's what he did. I mean, not only by being a really exemplary king, but they also had a family that very much carried on the family values that George V had um, exemplified. Mm-hmm. And They had their two wonderful daughters. They were very young. I mean, he was 40 when he became king, and she was 36. And when they went through the coronation in 1937, they were young and radiant and represented the future uh, for the monarchy. And they worked very, very hard. Mm. They really took it seriously. They understood duty. They understood service. And they really, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, they really stepped up to greatness. They represented so much to the British people, by example. And as they you know, showed how much they cared. I mean, during World War II, they were out on the streets almost every day. Um, mingling with all the people whose homes had been devastated, uh, they took that very seriously. And then, when of course they almost died when the when the palace was bombed, Queen Elizabeth famously said, "Now I can look the people of the East End in the face."
0: Yeah, so I mean, even just talking about th- that elements of it because so various points in your book i couldn't help thinking about the modern royal family as well and so thinking about Mm. that part obviously prince harry has his uh, security and police protection lawsuits and people always talk about this era of the royal family back during the second world war the queen as well as being a time when the royals were almost kind of built from different stuff and were tougher do you think that they were tougher or do you think i suppose that there just simply was no other option
1: well, I think they were tougher. They both obviously had been raised in very privileged circumstances, but he served in World War I. Most of the time he was ill. We all know that he suffered from a terrible stutter. He was absolutely dedicated to trying to master that. She, during World War One. They turned their castle in Scotland into a convalescent home, and she was dealing every day with hundreds of broken men with terrible wounds. So so she had a sort of innate compassion that was shaped by this experience. So they had bottom. I guess the English would would say they had real character. They knew what was important. And when the time came, you know, in World War Two, they just stepped up. At one point in his diary, George VI said, all I want to do is be useful in whatever way I can be. They never complained. They just got on with it.
0: Mm. And
1: that's what they taught their eldest daughter in particular. And she lived, you know, she and her sister lived in Windsor Castle for the whole war. Although the castle itself was never bombed, there were a lot of bombs falling. As her mother wrote um, in a letter, they're used to the whistle and scream of bombs. And they went to the shelter every day. But I, I loved finding out that they also had a lot of fun in the war. There was a famous quote on D-Day when George sixth, Wrote in his diary, they haven't had any fun yet.
0: Oh my! But well, they goodness. really had
1: fun. They saw movies. They had dances. They put on theatrical performances. You know, they enjoyed themselves when they could. They went up to Balmoral. They went to Sandringham. They had long weeks in the country, so they weren't sort of stuck in Windsor Castle the whole time.
0: And of course this experience was in some ways close to the experience of other city children, um, at the time, because many uh, children who lived in cities in Britain were evacuated to the countryside and they went from having one life in, you know, in London or, or wherever else, um, to then suddenly being parachuted into a very different type of upbringing in the countryside. And one of the Queen's landmark moments, of course, was when she gave the, her first public broadcast, Queen Elizabeth yes. II, this is, to Evacuee Children, which I think was also played in America.
1: Yes, it was. It was, it was. it was beamed to North America. She was 14 years old. It was on the anniversary of the day that her parents had been bombed in Buckingham Palace. And... She offered, she, uh, George VI wrote in his diary that he was amazed that she wasn't the least bit nervous. <laughs> and she spoke of hope and she spoke of uh, fortitude and she reassured the children who had been evacuated that the children back in England were sort of holding the fort, as it were. They, everybody, the population of the entire British population in one way or another, was another fighting army, Uh even though they weren't, you know, in the battlefield. They were doing all sorts of things to help Britain in the war effort.
0: And so we've just had Harry's um, biography spare talk a lot about royal upbringings and childhoods in quite sometimes quite pejorative terms. So describing how he uh, there weren't many hugs going around. Charles himself in the 1990s did his um, biography with uh, Jonathan Dimbleby. And again, it was a similar yes. characterization. The only place he could expect a hug was in the nursery. So how did the Queen, having also had a world war going on in the background and experienced the abdication crisis, which completely turned her life upside down. How did she escape her royal upbringing seemingly so well adjusted?
1: Well, I think the upbringing that George VI and Elizabeth provided was unusually nurturing. George VI called their family us poor, and they were more involved in the lives of their daughters Than other people, other aristocratic families, um, other royal families. Uh, It was a very tight bond. Um, They were four people who really meant the world to each other. And people noticed that. So, yes, uh, the future Queen Elizabeth II did receive a very nurturing um, upbringing. And when she became queen, At 25, she was by nature reserved, and most of all, at that age, surrounded by all these courtiers, all the gray men, all of them judgmental, she wanted to show them that she knew what she was doing and that she could be a queen. Mm -hmm. And that meant she was a professional. She was a working mother. She had to go on royal tours for six months at a time. Um, Fortunately, she had her mother, um, by then the queen Mum, who was as nurturing as she had been to her own daughters, particularly to Prince Charles. He grew up with a lot of hugs Mm. from his grandmother, and they were exceedingly close. They shared a sense of humor and they shared a love of art and architecture. And so she, as well as a very loving nanny, mm. um, gave him that upbringing. Now, I've always felt what Harry said, notwithstanding, that Charles was a loving father to his boys, particularly after Diana's death. But he was also. And almost he was an exceedingly busy person who was kind of determined to show the world that he deserved to be Prince of Wales. Mm. And he wanted to make a difference. I mean, he even wanted to save the world. And so I think as a result, he probably didn't spend as much time with his boys as his grandfather had with his two daughters, even though he was very busy as well. So I think, I mean, Harry has his truth (laughs) and his own memories. And a lot of them were dramatic because his parents' marriage was, it was a dramatic marriage. They were fighting a lot. They were, you know, they were just doing things. in front of their children that I'm sure were very difficult to witness. And that obviously had a more profound impact on Harry than it seems to have had on William. And for a long time, William and Harry were very bonded by having endured that very dysfunctional marriage. And um, William, I think, partly through... Marrying a woman who would understand that and who would support him, and particularly support him in his role as a future king, I think that made a big difference. Mm. Harry was Harry was footloose for quite a long time. He had a lot of issues. Um, he had psychological issues. He had substance use issues, and um, he, according to his book. He wanted to get out. And what do you think? And William was all in.
0: William was all in, yes. And what do you think of the fact that Harry chose to make these feelings and experiences public?
1: Well, I wish he hadn't. (laughs) Um, I really do. Because even though he was getting it out and having some kind of catharsis through that, I think in the process, he inflicted a lot of hurt mm. on the people who loved him there was a really interesting piece that Patty Davis wrote about her by her memoir in which she was very tough she was the daughter of Ronald and Nancy Reagan and she was very very tough on them and she wrote in this essay that she later lived to regret it and she wondered If Harry might feel the same way, because there were he said very hurtful things, Mm. you know, I think he could have accomplished the same thing over a series of um, therapy sessions in the in the confidential confines of his therapist's consulting room.
0: And there is obviously the publication of a memoir in your book, uh, a different memoir, but by another member of the royal family, the Duke of Windsor, King Edward the the Queen's uncle. And I couldn't help being reminded of this whole business uh, with Harry. Um, In a couple of respects, not only the publication of the memoir and the fact that the Queen Mother obviously wouldn't speak to the Duke of Windsor even when George VI was dying, but yeah, also the fact that it all kind of came out and was happening as George was losing his health and ultimately passing yeah. away, it reminded me a bit of Prince Philip.
1: Yes, that's, very, that's a very, very good observation because the Duke of Windsor had been publishing his book in sort of dribs and drabs and excerpts in the United States in magazines. And so they were very well aware of it. But he chose to publish it in London in the autumn of 1951 when the king was undergoing really severe surgery, he was having his left lung removed. And the Duke of Windsor chose to come to London at that moment to publicize his book. And there was a note that uh, the king's private secretary sent to her and said, would you, would you like to see The Duke of Windsor. And she said, absolutely not. And uh, he did cancel one of his. He canceled a dinner that was supposed to celebrate the publication of this book. But she would never see him again. Mm. I mean, she never saw him again after the day that he abdicated in 1936. Nor would his mother's. Well, she saw him finally. But they would neither of them receive his wife. And on Queen Mary's part, She had promised her husband, King George V, that she would never receive Wallace. And they both felt very strongly about it, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. And I think it was a reasonable approach for them to take. And I thought it was highly inappropriate for the uh, Duke of Windsor to push his book at a moment when his brother was gravely ill and, of course, Little over a year later, he would die. But the letters that Duke Windsor sent to his brother were sort of filled with self pity and blame. So it was, you know, there there were there are analogies, and Mm -hmm. one does wonder why Harry didn't really think about what was going on with his grandmother and his grandfather when they did the interview with Oprah Winfrey when his father was you know, it was the beginning of his final illness. Mm. Do you think... that His grandfather, when it, sorry, when his grandfather had been in the hospital for three weeks and was clearly very ill.
0: Mm. And do you think that period would resonate with the Queen? I mean, obviously, she was very young when it was happening. Um, do you think that that, it's obviously very difficult to say, but do you think that that uh, comparison, that analogy, would have resonated with other members of the royal family?
1: What with, with the Duke of Windsor publishing
0: Compa- compared then. to Prince Harry? Yes,
1: yeah. I mean, I don't know, but I mean, it is a it is a legitimate comparison. The Duke of Windsor's memoir was mild by comparison, and actually, parts of it are very well done. And you know, especially about his um, upbringing, he reserved his really caustic remarks for his for his letters. And um, he said some pretty terrible things and his letters to his brother and his mother.
0: Now, um, thinking back again to royal upbringings, do you think there are any lessons from the passage of royal history that you've been looking at for Prince William bringing up his children? Obviously, you've got a very strange inversion of the spare air dynamic with George and the Duke of Windsor because obviously the spare was needed.
1: Yes. Well, I think William and Catherine have really done a remarkably good job in preserving a zone of privacy. It was challenged at the beginning by paparazzi, and they drew a very, very strong line about what they would tolerate and what they would challenge. But, you know, I can't help thinking that Harry and Meghan are so obsessed with privacy And they're constantly violating their own privacy with interviews and and obviously Harry's book. But I would be stunned if William were to write any kind of a book that would, for example, try to counter what Harry has written and said, because I think there's no way to win that. Mm -hmm. It just escalates. But they're just William and Kate, I think are handling it very well. They're trying to create as normal an environment for their three children as is possible within the construct of the royal family. In a way, they remind me of George VI and Elizabeth in the way they're conducting themselves, because they clearly have a very warm family. They clearly are very involved in the lives of their children, Kate alone has launched an initiative into an ambitious initiative into early childhood development. Nobody back then really understood much of anything about Mm -hmm. how children grew up, but William and Kate are very aware of that. And they seem to be carrying everything out in a a sensible and well-considered way. They know that George is next in line after his father, and they're beginning to expose him to public events, and also his sister, who's right behind him, and Louis, Um, the likelihood of their ever becoming monarch is fairly slim, but nevertheless, they will be part of the coronation, Uh, They were part of the Trooping the Color. I saw them in the carriage going through horse guards. They were at the Jubilee, the big Jubilee celebration. So they're exposing them in limited ways to their public duties. But I think most of all, I remember Prince Charles once said, we work the way monkeys work. We, We imitate what our parents are doing. And in many ways that's true. And if you have parents who are modeling well as William and Kate are, I think that means a lot.
0: Mm, okay. And I d- mean,
1: that's what George VI and Elizabeth did for their daughters. Margaret was another was another story. And, you know, her life after her father's death was was not easy. And um, she was, at the time, this bear. And for personality reasons, for circumstances, she didn't handle it very well. That's not really in the scope of my book, but it is what happened.
0: So, in short, if the marriage of George VI and Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother uh, saved the monarchy back then, where do you see the current state of the monarchy based on the marriages that form its basis today?
1: Well, I think... The king and Queen Camilla have about as solid a marriage as you could imagine. She is a huge support for him. He's obviously been in love with her for a very long time, and she in in love with him. And I think she has a very important role as a sort of leavening force. She keeps his feet on the ground. And I think she is probably there to remind him that his duties are very different from what they were when he was Prince of Wales. And he could sort of wake up in the morning and say, I think I want to begin an initiative to save the red squirrels. (laughs) He can't do that anymore. He has to pay attention to what the government advises him to do. He, as far as I can tell in everything that he has done since the death of his mother, He's been very mindful of that. Mm. Um, he showed it in his initial broadcast that he gave after her death when he actually said that I am prepared to put aside the many charities and interests that I've been involved with for all these years. And Camilla is right there by his side. And much as Queen Elizabeth was by the side of George VI Uh, Queen Elizabeth was a source of strength for him, of reassurance when he was struggling uh, with his stutter, for example. She boosted his confidence. I think Camilla performs much the same role. And in the case of the marriage of William and, and Kate or Catherine, as we're supposed to call her now, there is you can see that there's a lot that they share. Um, both in terms of their interests and their values. And that she, particularly having been going out with him for eight years before she became his wife, she was exposed to mm-hmm. a lot and she knew what she was getting into by joining the royal family. I thought one of the fascinating things about the story of George VI and Elizabeth is that when he fell in love with her in the summer of 1920 she was a sort of good time girl um, she wasn't fast or anything like that but she had a big embracing family she had a lot of friends and she had a lot of you know as she got a little bit older she had a lot of freedom and she knew from being somewhat I you mean, know having some approximate relationship with the royal family She knew from that that if she were to marry him, she would be giving up a lot of that freedom. And as it turned out, she was able to balance it all pretty well. But it took him 30 months to convince her two proposals that she turned down and the third one that she accepted. And it wasn't that she didn't admire him and respect him. And eventually, I mean, I don't think she was madly in love with him, but she became deeply in love with him. And so that was the basis for a partnership that really worked. Mm. And I see William and Kate and Charles and Camilla as very strong partnerships.
0: And on that note... Please do stay with me, but we're going to take one more quick break. And before we do, a reminder to listeners to rate and review The Royal Report in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows. Now, when I'm back, Prince Harry is suing the Daily Mail and its sister titles.
1: Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your
1: happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
0: Hi everyone and welcome back to the show Prince Harry is suing the Daily Mail alongside famous names like Liz Hurley, Sir Elton John and Sadie Frost. The case is due at the High Court in London and the newspaper group is going to be accused of bugging, it's going to be accused of listening live into telephone calls and using intrusive and unlawful methods to gain private information Um, Now Harry and Meghan between them have sued the Mail in one form or another numerous times and themselves (laughs) been involved in up of 10 lawsuits. So, Sally, what do you make of all this?
1: Well, I think in the case of the initial lawsuit, it's very valid for everybody to be trying to take legal action because what was done, the bugging, the hacking and all of that was clearly both unlawful and unethical. And I think that they had every reason to be suing along with, as you say, others. The more recent ones... Could they have been managed in some settlement out of court? One would think so. Uh, And I think the whole fight over Harry's security, um, well, I understand his point of view. On the other hand, he's in the UK in a way. He has more protection um, from intrusion than he has in the state of California, where Operatives from TMZ are always buzzing around. And that kind of intrusion that his mother suffered just doesn't happen anymore in Britain. Um, They're not chasing Kate down the street. They're not taking illegal photographs of uh, George and Charlotte and Louis. So I just think that all this litigation is costing everybody a lot of money. And I think with sort of reasonable conversations, they might have ironed everything out in a more amicable way mm. without exposing all this in public.
0: And so, from putting your taking your royal hats off and putting your media hats on because obviously you've held prominent right. positions in w- within the media as well, what do you think the stakes are for the mail? I mean will this damage their reputation if they lose or are they such a controversial news organization to begin with that really everybody's already made their minds <laughs> up one way or the other?
1: I think people have have their own views of the mail, and uh it is. I mean, it is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it has the largest following of any legacy news site in the world. It is fast moving. It has, it has very well-reported pieces. At the same time, it has very bizarre pieces. It's, you know, it is, it is sui generis in that way. So I don't see any particular reputational damage um, if they lose. I mean, obviously, the reporter who did the piece um, that said Harry was trying to hide his negotiations or I don't have the particulars. But but anyway, the reporter may suffer, um, which would be unfortunate. And I don't think, for example, Megan prevailed in her lawsuit against the mail for publishing excerpts from the letter that she wrote to her father. And that was all based on privacy and copyright. And the decision was probably correct. But at the same time, during that period, both Harry and Meghan were very entwined with their own outlets in the media. And they were playing the game that um, Harry described both in the Netflix documentary and his book. And I'm not sure that they weren't doing much of the same thing that the Royal family may or may not have been doing. They have to deal with the reporters and they have to have a good relationship with them. I've been on trips and have watched how it works. Mm. And there's a lot of give and take. And many of the reporters that, um, that Harry has derided are very good reporters. They check their sources. They don't, they don't rush into print. So, I mean, I think they should just at some point back off. Obviously, these cases will be resolved in one way or another, but I don't think Harry and Meghan are doing themselves any favors by constantly battling with the British media.
0: Do you think there's a bit of a law of diminishing returns in the sense that you win one case and it gets celebrated yes, as a absolutely. huge victory, but then if you fight more and more and more, do you still get the same benefit for the ones that follow?
1: I think. I mean, that's a very good point. Um, they may not. I mean, Megan's Megan's victory was celebrated as as a big win for her. I think you get it, but particularly Harry's fight with uh, the government about his protection. I think it's it's very complicated, and and I don't know if the average reader really understands it. I mean, they do look at it, and if you can look at it in a sort of simple way, you can say, okay, they left the royal family, and they're on their own, mm. really. I mean, he complained that his father had cut him off, but why should his father continue to support him when he's not a working member of the royal family? They they were obligated to find a new way of making a living, and they've done very well at it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what they do five years from now, ten years from now, I don't know. At this stage of the game, they can afford to pay for private protection. And That's what they're doing. And they want to have more when they come to London, for example, if they come to the coronation. And in all likelihood, they'll have that. I think they had that when they were there for the Platinum Jubilee. Now, if they're coming there privately, that's another matter. Mm -hmm. Um, Does the British government really want to play for police protection for them to come and have a private visit, and go to Soho House for dinner. I don't know if that's right.
0: Yeah. And do you hope to see Harry and Meghan at the coronation, or do you think they should stay away?
1: Oh, it's so complicated. And I would assume that by now, I mean, the reports are that they've been invited, and other reports from their side are that they want their son and daughter to be included i really don't think that's necessary at all uh, there's every legitimate reason for george and charlotte and perhaps even louis if he can <laughs> if he can control himself <laughs> um, but i think he would in that you know if they, he were briefed in detail on what that solemn ceremony is all about i think um harry and megan have to face the reality that they will be fringe players Mm. in the coronation. They are not working members of the royal family. He is, obviously, the son of the king. And so what they're obviously trying to work out is a way for them to be there, but not participate in any of the rituals and things like the uh, carriage procession, And certainly not in the body of the Coronation Service, in which the Prince of Wales, William, will play a very prominent role, uh, which is entirely appropriate.
0: Sally, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me and all the best of luck promoting your book.
1: Thank you. It was fun to be on here with
0: you. Right. Now, Prince Harry's lawsuit against the Mail newspapers is due to kick off at the High Court in London on Monday. He's not the only claimant. He sues alongside the likes of Elton John, Sadie Frost, Liz Hurley, and a number of other claimants. They are accusing the publisher of the Mail and sister titles of bugging phones, cars, blagging private information, bank data, medical records, that kind of thing. Also, paying police officials. Now, I note that the court paperwork says paying police officials. So that is potentially different to police officers. Now, what that might relate to is that the person who operates the police national computer, which would have a lot of information like addresses and stuff like that, uh, is not necessarily going to be a police officer. They will often be civilian police staff. So that's what that could be a reference to. Uh, now, Associated Newspapers, which publishes the mail, has responded, has come out swinging, defending itself, saying uh, this is their statement from the time the case was filed. We utterly and unambiguously refute these preposterous smears. These unsubstantiated and highly defamatory claims based on no credible evidence appear to be simply a fishing expedition by claimants and their lawyers. So that's what they're saying about it. Now, separately, Harry is also suing the mail for libel over a story relating to the removal of his police security. He's suing the Mirror Group and also the Murdoch Empire for historic allegations of phone hacking and privacy breaches and he's got two judicial reviews against the Home Office. Um, both are about his the removal of his police protection, but the first one is about the original decision to deny him police bodyguards, which was taken back in 2020. The second one is uh, relates to a decision by... It also includes the Metropolitan Police. It, it relates to a decision to deny him the right to pay for his own Metropolitan Police security in circumstances where he has been considered ineligible. So he's got a lot of cases going on, is the, is the bottom line. Uh, and on that note, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston, and you will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, a conservative think tank wants to see Prince Harry's visa application. Prince Harry's book Spare had loads of revelations in it. And now on this show, we've focused mainly on family drama but Harry also described taking a whole array of drugs from cocaine to marijuana to magic mushrooms to ayahuasca. Um, And this didn't escape the attention of a Washington, D.C.-based conservative think tank called the Heritage Foundation. Now, they are arguing that he should have disclosed a lot of this information when he was applying for his visa and that if he had done, he might have been rejected. So they want now for um, immigration officials in D.C., to publish his visa application form and they have raised the prospect that it could even be revoked depending on what it says. So Mike Howell is their director of their oversight project and he told the Daily Mail this request is in the public interest in light of the potential revocation of Prince Harry's visa for illicit substance use and further questions regarding the prince's drug use and whether he was properly vetted before entering the United States. Now, it's worth stressing here that we don't actually know exactly what kind of a visa Harry was on. You know, there is an outside chance that Harry might even have been on a diplomatic visa, although it's kind of hard to see how that could be justified. Three years later, Um, it probably have been justified if he literally just flew into the country really quickly without having had time to arrange anything, which does sound like what happened. You know, Harry and Meghan moved to America very quickly. They'd been staying in Canada um, since November. And then COVID was coming in, basically lockdown was imminent, and they just basically dropped everything and ran. Uh, very few people knew that they'd done it. Tyler Perry was one of the people who did. He, he allowed them to stay in his mansion because they didn't have anywhere to stay. Um, even the royal family didn't actually know that they were in America for six weeks. So this is what Harry told their Netflix show, Harry and Meghan. He said he revealed that actually nobody knew. And, you know, you might remember if you've seen the docuseries, you might remember these like little video clips of them just kind of relaxing in Tyler Perry's mansion and in the grounds of his estate, um, having a lovely time uh, with the world blissfully unaware that they were there. Needless to say, whatever visa Harry is on, the Heritage Foundation want the application form published and they are waving around the prospect of him effectively being kicked out of America if, if the answers that he gave to the questions he was asked don't add up with what's in spare. So I've spoken to lawyers about this and the impression I'm getting is it's very unlikely that Homeland Security will actually get tough with Harry on this issue. They don't tend to get aggressive about visas that have already been granted unless there's some kind of an arrest or a criminal charge or some other legal process is initiated. So... For Harry, I guess he can probably just ignore it, and the story will burn itself out, um, probably quite quickly too. Because I don't really see where else it goes from here. I think right now immigration officials are just saying no, they don't do that. Uh, visa applications are private, um, so I don't see. Yeah, I don't see how the Heritage Foundation can take this anywhere else. But it did make me think one thing, though, which is that this is the kind of hostility that people tend to associate with Britain's reaction to Harry and Meghan, not America's. So uh, let's say, for example, a British think tank had done this while the Sussexes were still working royals and living in Britain. I can't help thinking that it would have been used as an example of why Harry and Meghan had to leave Britain. So part of their story over the past few months has been about the way uh, America's reaction to them has started to morph into something closer to Britain's reaction. Regular listeners to the show would have heard me talk about this before. You know, obviously, America was hugely positive about them for months and months and months. Actually, I feel like it was mainly after Spare, but to some extent after their Netflix show in December. Um, But certainly after Harry's memoir was released in January, um, there's been a big swing in the opinion polls against Harry and Meghan, and they are now in their net approval ratings, both in negative numbers. So, you know, it's not the same as the way they were viewed in Britain when they were working royals. There are differences, but they're actually less popular in America now than they were in Britain in 2019. So this all basically feeds into the debate about whether they had to leave Britain or whether they chose to leave Britain. By the way, if they did choose... I totally understand that, and I get it. You know, they weren't enjoying the monarchy, um, and Prince Harry, by the sound of it, had not been enjoying the monarchy for many, many years. So I am fine with them choosing to leave. I actually think that leaving Britain was the right thing for Harry. But the point is that they have said they had to leave, and so it's valid to consider whether that is actually true. Was Britain in 2019 genuinely? inhospitable to Harry and Meghan. Because if it was, I mean, they were much more popular in Britain at the time than they are in America right now. And now you have a conservative think tank actively trying to get Harry's visa revoked, which potentially might lead to him getting kicked out of the country if he couldn't fight back against it. So if Britain was inhospitable in 2019, then where does that leave them in America today? Look, I kind of think that Harry and Meghan are fine to say that they weren't enjoying it in Britain. They are absolutely fine to say that they couldn't handle being working royals anymore. They couldn't handle their life in the monarchy and their life in the palace. But I do think that there is a a valid pushback. I'm not saying it completely undermines their entire argument, but there is a valid pushback purely in terms of the fact that in Britain, in November 2019, a majority of the British public liked Meghan, according to YouGov polling. November 2019, more than 50% of the country liked Meghan, and she was deep into positive numbers in her net approval rating, something like plus 20. In America now, she, both of them are minus numbers. Um, and that num- month, November 2019, was the month they first left for Canada. Um, the f- next set of polling after that point was January 2020. That was after they announced they were quitting, and that was the first time that they started to crash in their public approval rating in Britain. So just one thought about the specific way that they've described their journey from Britain to America. And I will just stress one more time, I am completely fine if they chose to leave. Of course, they have every right to choose to leave. I'm completely comfortable with that. I just think it is worth considering the other side of the story, which is that a lot of people in Britain love them. And that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening and a curtsy to you all.